mouse to work properly. I think I need a new mouse, actually. Um, I want to talk about a very interesting thing that happened in the last few, few days. And the really cool thing about this, y'all, oh, let me take the banner down. The really cool thing about this is the fact that Fukushima, Japan is actually quite well known for its hotshot, its, its uh, UFO, or it's, I should say, you know, 
It's very hot over there. It's very, very hot over there. Actually, Vice just did a special, believe it or not, on Fukushima and how it's a UFO hotspot. So Fukushima is also the same place where a tsunami after an earthquake caused a nuclear power plant accident, an actual, a pretty big one, actually. Um, they still haven't been able to contain this. And the really crazy thing about this particular incident with Fukushima, when that nuclear power plant completely just psh, exploded. I mean, this happened in modern times, right? Modern times. And um, nuclear waste pouring out into the water. There's no telling what sort of weird things you may see in Fukushima in the water. You know, you might come across <laughs> three-headed fish or some crazy, some, you know, something crazy like that. Really. <laughs> Really, really, really. Um, so what's pretty amazing, though, is over the last few days, a UFO, a major UFO event occurred, right? In which there appeared to be some sort of, I think it was a tetrahedron shaped like craft that hovered, that hovered over the Fukushima nuclear power plant. Now, there was an earthquake recently. There was actually an earthquake recently that happened. And let me just pause this really quick. There was a earthquake that happened. And this UFO event happened right after this earthquake struck the same area. Now, what makes this really interesting now, especially is because number one, disclosure, some say disclosure has already started. Number two, the fact that these UFOs, they seem to show up in places where there's nuclear technology. Remember the incident that's been well publicized about a UFO event that happened over a few military bases and complete, completely shut down all of their missiles. So what is it, you know, are they possibly saying, who knows? There is a webcam that sits looking, overlooking the Fukushima nuclear power plant, uh, the Daiichi nuclear power plant. There's a webcam that's always on looking and it managed to capture this footage. And it is amazing. There's no sound, by the way. But it's, y'all remember that tetrahedron-shaped UFO that hovered over the Pentagon and the Kremlin in Moscow? In a 10-year, separated by a 10-year difference. Do y'all remember that? That looks, it's dark. It's hard to see it, but it looks like a pyramid-shaped one to me.
Y'all give me just a second. Let's check out this uh, this video footage now. This is uh, interesting, you guys. All right, I am back. Hey, just my five. Hey, if you haven't heard, there is a lot of talk about this event that happened the other day over that nuclear uh, power plant. The, the one that actually was that was destroyed over there in Japan, in Fukushima. Um, this happened, uh, you know, there's videos popping up everywhere, but this comes from a webcam. Hold on, let me mute this Discord. There is a webcam. Hold on just a second. Let me try to mute this. Um, Discord makes it so difficult. Give me just one second.
voice and video. Test, 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 test. Share a test, say something fun. We'll play your voice back to you. Okay. I could do this. Okay. I should do it. Give me just a second. And there's too many damn settings in Discord for audio. Like, geez. I just want to mute it for just a second. Okay. Yeah. Okay. There we go. All right. Um, hey, what's up, Lamina? What's up, TRG? What's up? What's up? What's up? All right. All right. Let me get back to it here. Uh, hey, third eye. I see you. I see you. Okay. Um, so anyway, Fukushima, right? Already a, a UFO hotspot. Many people suspect it is because of the nuclear situation there. You guys remember, right, how bad it was. I mean, it, it was just as bad as Chernobyl. In a lifetime, to have experienced two nuclear power plant disasters. And from all the research I know that I've done over the years of UFOs and aliens and all that sort of a thing, a topic that I enjoy quite a lot, um, nuclear power, missiles, uh, nuclear energy, where huge quantities of like radioactive substances can be found. I mean, even in Chernobyl, man will never be able to live in that area ever again. We're talking about miles, miles and miles, a huge radius of geographical landmass that no human being can, can live in. Uh, well, some actually, I think there are some people that actually do live, you know, around that nuclear power plant. Uh, some people that didn't want to uh, leave their homes or whatever, but we're talking about entire towns that were deserted. Uh, that, I mean, we're talking just the scale of destruction. Again, in places where this nuclear activity happens. So again, you know, there was the story, the very famous story about the uh, a UFO situation happening in which it, missile systems shut down with no intervention by human. There's also talk about a video, guys, that was recorded back in the 90s of a UFO that was hovering where a missile was taking off, I believe it was the United States 
missile test of some kind, but they put a, a missile warhead, you know, in that they wanted to put it in the sky, just like they would a space shuttle. As soon as they launched it on video, there is a UFO shooting a beam in three separate places within like a split second. It's in three different places shooting a beam that disabled that missile. It didn't even allow it off the ground. So y'all, I don't know, but there's something real interesting. We are going to discuss here um, tomorrow night. I rescheduled it for tomorrow night where we're going to talk about the tall whites in more detail. And there is a, a lot of discussion to be had about this relationship between these tall whites, these this alien civilization and the United States military, and that they're currently operating out of Nellis Air Force Base, or they did at least in the late 60s, for sure. And that Charles Hall, a United States meteorological weather specialist who was stationed there, came in contact with them all the time. It was standard. It was a part of his job. He had top secret orders. And to hear him tell all his stories is amazing. He actually wrote a book on it called Millennial Hospitality. He has a few books on the topic. But the, you know, just to hear him go into detail, and it's amazing how it matches up with so many other stories we've heard over the years where we get little bits of information. So we all want to know, like, why are they here? Why would they hover over the nuclear power plant in this way for long periods of time where they know people are going to see them? I don't think they're trying to hide it anymore. Maybe that is the disclosure that everybody's talking about, right? Disclosure into UAPs and UFOs doesn't necessarily mean anything about aliens is going to be disclosed. It's possible that there may be some creatures that live on this earth that have never been in space. They're just a different type of creature. You've ever looked up cryptids? That's a topic I could dig into all day too. Cryptids, cryptzoology, very weird, strange creatures going all the way back to, you know, mythology even. But even crazy videos that we see even today, 2022, a very strange creature, South America's huge on those types of that type of stuff. Oh, there's some weird stuff going on, y'all. They're splicing DNA. They're making, I mean, look at the homunculus, that Russian man that was able to grow a creature by fertilizing a chicken egg with human DNA. Mm. We know they've been experimenting the uh, the military base that we talked about before, Nightmare Hall, seven stories down, completely controlled, the, and, and three of those floors controlled by a species of alien, where they say that some scary experiments go down in that place, and there's absolutely no human intervention that takes place at all. Uh, there was even Dolce, Dolce, New Mexico. You know, the Dolce Wars, that guy, Philip Snyder, said he had his hand blown off, his fingers blown off. He actually went on tour and talked about this, lost his fingers. 
having it shot off with some sort of a beam weapon. Well, how about Charles Hall goes to explaining some of his experiences outside of his book, you know, on video, which I love it because I honestly, I probably wouldn't have even known about the book. But he talks about his experiences with these tall whites. He was on, he, he worked for over two years in Nellis Air Force Base as a meteorological weather specialist. He came in contact with them all the time. He talked about some of the weapons that he knows that they had in their possession. Now, you know, one of the things we've also heard about aliens looking like they're floating when they're walking. You know, we walk on the ground, but there's been reports of instances where people have ran into beans and they say they're floating. Well, we may have got a little bit of an understanding on maybe why some of some of those reports are what they are, because come to find out the way Charles Hall tell it, tells it. These beans, their bodies are quite fragile. I'm just from the discussion that I, you know, from what I heard, I take it like their bodies are so fragile that even walking long distances would probably put a hurt on them. Like their bodies are really fragile. They also live to be an extraordinary amount of time. They never stop growing. He said there's, they're eight, nine feet tall, men and women, and they have children. There's actually entire family units. He said he's came into contact with 10 or more of them at a single time. They have the ability, they have weapons that have the ability to even pause you. And you'll look up and 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour has went by and you don't know what you did. We'll come to find out there is some sort of weaponry that they have that they can actually shoot at a specific part of the body. I know this sounds crazy, but I'm a pretty rational, sane person, okay? I'm just as skeptical as anybody else out here. But hey. They say that, you know, from the rumor and the talk and all the research I've done, reptilians, these, these grays, tall whites, Nordic Swedes, all sorts of different, there's, there's several different alien species and alien types, according, you know, according to many reports, according to myth, according to lore, according to many stories that have passed through the years. But when I heard Charles Hall talking about those tall whites, it's so interesting that I think I'm going to even play a little clip of it here um, in just a second. This is one of those streams where I really, I don't care, okay? I'll, it'll probably get flagged down. I mean, a lot of my content about that gets attacked all the time. It's pretty crazy. I even get weird copyright takedown requests in fake names more than once appeal it, whatever. I never have a problem getting through it, but it's just the fact of why would you want to take down a skinny Bob video? Everybody in the world's using those clips. Why come at me? People that talk about this type of stuff, y'all, our videos get pushed down <laughs> straight up because, you know, people... 
it's a hard thing to, it's hard to believe it. It's hard to even contemplate it, honestly. But remember, let me show y'all something. Remember the tetrahedron-shaped UFOs that were caught on camera over Moscow, the Kremlin, you know, the most important building in Russia, over the Pentagon 10 years later. So let me show you this. And that's what I, it sort of looks like that to me. It's dark, okay? But it does look like a tetrahedron shape. And you're going to see what I mean when I show you this. You're going to see why I say that. This is video of the tetrahedron shaped pyramid that was over the Kremlin in Russia. Check it. This was recorded. This happened, this, this particular object hovered over the Kremlin for like two hours. This was caught on video by several people, not just one, several. It caught the same thing, this pyramid-shaped UFO just literally hovering over the Pentagon. This has also been talked about um, by the History Channel too. It's been talked about by every person in this UFO community. Now, this was in 2008 or 2009. And then 10, 11 years later, just a few years ago, exact looking, okay, tetrahedron shaped pyramid was caught on video hovering over the Pentagon. Now, this is the footage of the tetrahedron pyramid-shaped object hovering over the Pentagon just a few years ago. Somebody enhanced it, so I wanted to show you this enhancement. Yeah, this was uh, December of 2018. Like, like I said, 10, 11 years later. I think it was like 10. Looks at... <laughs> I don't think we maybe would have even seen the outline if it hadn't have been for the city lights. But it that how could anything hover in the air and and change physics like that? And that was the thing that you know Charles Hall was saying, you know, that in some of his content where he was talking about his interactions with those tall whites in their deep space crafts and how their deep space crafts operated. And the key to their operation is displacing gravity. That is the key to it. Somehow it displaces gravity and can move in an instant. And there is like two modes to this displacement of gravity. One, which is a little bit, you know, quite a lot weaker um, but it will allow the, the craft to, to move, you know, 10, 20 miles an hour. And then when they go full throttle, so to speak, it completely, it, the, the range around the craft is pretty wide. So if you were to, you know, some, there's some, it's some sort of like electric discharge of some type, but they say, if you were to actually get in that range, you would be damaged possibly. There's been talk about people losing their lives, actually, who were testing and studying these crafts in the military. There was an incident where I, six, seven scientists 
and military specialists were killed out in Area 51. Testing, testing, going through, a, a, you know, trying to learn how to operate one of these craft. And some sort of emission from the craft killed all of them. Um, and it wasn't until they actually, you know, had conversations with a specific being that they discovered that this craft was putting out, you know, something dangerous to humans. And they could not, you can't be in a certain range of, or vicinity of the craft when it's in a certain throttle, so to speak, right? But it, it's, it's not about having a motor that generates energy that pushes you through the, through the air. This is completely different. It's almost like you can pull yourself through because you're using gravity and time doesn't even matter at that point. So you get to, it's almost like hopscotch, like jumping over the competition, right? I mean, you can do things instantly. Uh, he even talked about these suits that these beings had to wear. He said that um, actually what was pretty amazing is they had somehow figured out how to displace the gravity, that they could actually go into the craft, sit down in their chairs, because he's actually been, there's actually uh, experimental craft that the United States military is currently in possession of, has built that can also displace gravity. But they, of course, haven't went public about that. The United States military is also in possession, obviously, of other craft that they didn't create, that was not made of anything in this world. I've even heard stories about the makings, the inner makings of these craft. The motor, what you would look at as the motor, the exhaust, all that sort of stuff would look like it was all made as one. There was no seam, not a single seam. Just amazing stuff. Stuff that our minds just can't even begin to comprehend. But these suits that these tall whites would wear because their bodies are quite fragile. That would allow them to float their, their body suits have the ability to change gravity around them in in a form of walking y'all it's crazy sometimes you ever wonder to yourself if this sounds so crazy could it possibly be true i tend to to uh, say yes to that but again this is the pyramid over the pentagon and it just hovered there for hours, both times that this tetrahedron-shaped UFO showed up over the Kremlin and the Pentagon. It was at night. And now we see something extremely similar in Fukushima. Here's the, the video again. This is making the rounds. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing this, you know, on some mainstream media. But again, you know, Fukushima is where that Daiichi nuclear power station completely melted down after that tsunami. And that is, for some reason, nuclear material, weapons, huge weapons are a concern where we've seen a lot of hot UFO activity in these places. It really looks like a tetrahedron-shaped one, doesn't it? 
It almost looks like a t one tetrahedron shape and a, then a scout craft. Um, I know that in some of the reports I've been hearing, some people say there was four UFOs. Maybe that's why they say that because they see four lights. But again, I it put to the mind for me, I thought about this, these incidents in the, you know, over the Pentagon and the Kremlin. So, and the way that it hovered and turned like that, it's just the, the movement reminds me of that. Maybe there's just a light in each corner of the, of the triangle shape known as a tetrahedron. So, Very interesting, to say the least. Now, if you want to uh, head out, feel free. I'm um, I want to show y'all a little bit of this, this, uh, or let you hear this really quick um, regarding the tall whites. We're going to be talking about it tomorrow, but y'all, it's really, really interesting. Just a second. room and he shut the screen real fast and I said what are you doing and he said oh no I'm just writing my memoirs for grandchildren for the past 18 years without telling me about it there's so many ways that you can be caught unawares and be afraid you know and it comes down to a showdown of how many different types of psychological defenses do you have you probably don't realize how much humans depend on each other to validate their experience. Do you see what I see? And many humans base their version Objects. of reality. And I think they were using me as the test. Just check it. Just check it. And over the Let years, I also uh, uh, received an, a master's in business administration from Nova Southeastern University at Fort Lauderdale. Um, during the 80s, when computers finally were good enough so that there were word processors, then I began writing my memoirs for my children and grandchildren. And th those memoirs became the Millennial Hospitality Series. Found that I wanted to convey to um, people, especially my children and my grandchildren, how it felt to be the weather observer and to have the aliens come down to where I was and to have to interact with them. Originally, I was part of the, uh, part of the rotation pattern. So originally, I was sent up in May of 65 for six weeks. The person who replaced me was compromised, and then I was sent to replace him. And in the course of time, the U.S. generals, the American generals, and the aliens formed a committee and decided that they would pick just one observer 
and they picked me. And as a community years that I spent out on the ranges, the aliens who are tall and white and have family groups with women and children would frequently come down to where I was. As the weather observer, my duties were to go out to the ranges Monday through Friday every day um, to, to take the, the morning run. The morning run was at 4.30 a.m. To do so, you had to get up at 3 o'clock and drive out there at night, rain or shine. And then you had to fill, uh, you, you had to start, there was a generator out, uh, two generators out there, uh, two diesel generators. You had to start up a generator so that you had some electricity and, and it would run the fan on the heater and so on and the radio and the lights. And then you had to fill up a weather balloon with helium, attach a light and release it. The children found that very entertaining. It was a pretty balloon with pretty lights. And so they, the mothers liked to bring the children down to look through my theodolite as I was tracking the balloon. About half the time they came so the kids could play. Um, it, it, uh, when, I first uh, when I first encountered the aliens, uh, I was terrified because they're not human, even though they look reasonably human. It probably took me more than six months to get over the terror that I felt when they came, even though they had not come to harm me. It's just that being out there at night in the desert and, say, hearing people walking behind your weather shack when you think you're alone, even if they were priests, you'd be afraid, you know. Well, when you discover that they're not human, well, you know, this was the 60s. There was just, you know, it took a, it took a long time to get used to it. Um, there was no briefing. The Air Force never said, this is the situation. The aliens never came and said, this is the situation. They never came to teach me anything. They came when they wanted. They left when they wanted. And therefore, it took me a long time to, um, to get used to it. Everything I know about the aliens, I had to figure out myself. Or, or occasionally they would answer questions, but not very many, because they came for their purposes, and when they'd finished their purposes, they left. Um, they were really quite friendly, but they, each one of them was an individual. Interacting with them is sort of like interacting with the people in New York City. There are saints and there are sinners. You know, there, there are people of all different walks of life and all different viewpoints. And so, you know, I had some that were close friends, like, or almost like brothers, like tour guide, whose life I was credited with saving, and the teacher who credited with me with saving her daughter's life. And on the other hand, there were some, like one of the alien generals, that, uh, golly, I'm still afraid of him, you know? <laughs> I mean, if you met him, if he said, stand there, you stood there, you know? <laughs> it was no, no backtalk. The alien doctor, who who was the doctor that saved tour, did the medical work on tour guide, their CIA names. He was just a nice guy, you know. He was the kind of guy that might come up and hug you if you let him. I never did. <laughs> it freaked me out. But they just came in all different. You know, you had to deal with each one of them as individuals. Um, it took a while to get used to that, and it it, it became a process of getting to know each one to the extent that they were, you dealt with them like people. 
base that they have up in Area 54, they, they use that base the same way that the U.S. Air Force or the U.S. Navy uses, base, uses their bases, the way the Navy would use a base in the Philippines or on an island in the Pacific. At the, at the base, at the alien base, the tall white deep spacecraft arrive and leave on schedule. And they arrive at, typically on, at sundown on the night of the full moon they, because they're gravity-powered. They are in, typically in ba at the base for two weeks, and then they leave at midnight on the night of the new moon because they're gravity-powered, presuming everything is going well. During those two weeks, the spacecraft is refueled and repaired, and the people on board get off and stretch their legs. So at the base, there's a more or less permanent contingent of tall whites who are experienced in dealing with humans and typically who know English. And um, on the other hand, every two weeks, or, you know, every time a deep spacecraft arrives, there's a contingent of new arrivals, many of whom have never seen humans before. And, and, and while the spacecraft is being repaired and refurbished, then the experienced troops, uh, the experienced all whites, typically take those new arrivals who are brave enough, take them out and show them the town. You take them out and show them what humans are like. Uh, and of course, me running my weather station, um, I'm the test human, you know. And so it was common every time there was a new moon for, you know, after the new arrivals had rested up, for them to, for the experienced uh, for an experienced guard to bring around a group of new arrivals, the number of new arrivals could be anywhere from two or three to 20, depending on how many were brave enough to come watch Gorilla Charlie in the, in the sagebrush. And, um, and, and so um, and while the spacecraft is being repaired, they also had um, a technology exchange program with the U.S. Air Force in which, in which those technologies which they were willing to share with the Air Force, they would work on joint projects with the U.S. Air Force. They were only willing to share technology to the extent that it benefited them. For example, when the spacecraft was in port, they might need spare parts. Those spare parts might include radio equipment. Well, it was easier for them if they could just call up the U.S. Air Force and say, "Could we buy a new radio?" You see, uh, so it was very so it was ob. And on the other hand, the Air Force can and the Army can always use better radios. You see, and so it was common for them. So one area where they were obviously doing technology transfer was in the area of radio communications so that we could build radios that they could use and in return we knew how to build better radios. Uh, uh, some technologies like the secret to how they're, the, the secret to how, they're, how they traveled faster than light, they were not willing to share. The idea of us having our own spacecraft traveling faster than the speed of light with nuclear weapons on board heading for their home planet they didn't see where that was in their interest. And so so when, we, when I say they were doing technology transfer with the Air Force, that was a negotiation where both sides mutually agreed that it was in their interest to do so. The time of probably 10 times longer than we do, they live almost 700 years. And, uh, and their spacecraft clearly travel faster than the speed of light.
They, they look, they're humanoid. Their skin is as white as a piece of paper. Throughout much of their adult life, they're the same height that I am, 5'11", 6 feet tall. <clears throat> they, have, um, they have large eyes. Their eyes are perhaps twice as large as ours. They're typically blue, and then it's like blue, blue eyes with white pupils. Um, although when they, when they get older, especially the men, their eyes take on a pink shade. Their eyes stretch further around the sides of their head than human eyes do. And, 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 and their, their ears and their nose, noses are only about half the size of human ears and noses. And their ears lay back along the side of their head more than a human does. They have, their lips are not as prominent as humans, and they don't have teeth. They just have ridges because they're plant eaters. They don't eat meat. They have much less hair than we do. They don't have any hair on their arms, and, on their, and the men don't have beards. On their head, they have, the hair is on, they have only about half as much hair as humans, and their hair is so thin and transparent that they appear to be platinum blonde. Okay, uh, uh, sometimes when they keep their hair cut short, sometimes they don't appear to have hair because it's so thin. They, uh, they, they um, they're, 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 they're much frail. They're, they're built. Their, their body structure is more frail than ours. The um, alien whose CIA name was Range Four Harry, for example. One time I saw him walking in the soft dirt over on the southwest side of the Range 3 Lounge. And after he had left, I went over and measured the depths of the footprints he left. And from those, I estimated that he only weighed between 90 and 110 pounds, even though he was the same height as I am. Their arms, their bones are only about half as big as ours. Their thumbs are only about half as long, but their fingers are longer in proportion to their hand than ours, and they're way more flexible. It me, it, but it also means that they're not built for heavy lifting. We're built like gorillas compared to them, you see. Um, they have men, women, and children. And if the men and women are standing side by side and not walking or moving, it's frequently not possible to tell which one is the man and which one is the woman, especially for the young adults. Uh, when they get older, then, then there are obvious differences, but in the facial structure and the bones and stuff. But especially for the young adults, it's entirely possible for two of them to be standing side by side. And if they're not moving, to be not sure if you're talking to men or women. Once they start moving, though, then it's very obvious which ones are the men and which ones are the women. Because the men are more like human men. When they walk, they kind of go pound, pound, pound. Whereas the women are, are much lighter on their feet and much, um, much more animated. The, the women are much more like human women, much more willing to talk than the men. It wouldn't be at all unusual for, say, four, four young men to come around and not have any reason to say anything and not say anything. To just come around, and, to just come and not say hello, not say goodbye, not say anything in between and just stand and look at you. Whereas the women, if they came, usually the women would say something like, uh, typically, uh, is it okay if, my, if the children play while you release the balloon? 
own. Or, or usually, if you ask the women something, they would have some questions, um, or some, or, or or at least some conversation. But they never came just, the tall whites never came just to talk with me. If they were talking with me, there was it was always as part of the reason they came. The, um, the, the women were very proud of the fact that they loved their children. The men were too, but the women were immensely proud of it. If a tall white lady came and she had children with her, a very common way for her to start the conversation would be for her to ask me using English, which she had learned, do I understand that they love their children more than human women love their children? Or in other words, I want to make sure my children are safe, you see? And of course, when I said, yes, I understand that, then they would re noticeably relax and feel happier. If a tall white lady came with children and she didn't say anything, a common way for me to start the conversation would be for me to say, I understand that you love your children more than human women love their children, and then she'd relax and feel, and feel better. In many ways, the tall white women were like female gorillas. could consider the children to be untouchable, okay? If you touch the children, the mother might kill you, no matter how pleasant she seemed, no matter how close the child came. So, for example, and I speak from direct experience, if I was standing by my theodolite and the child wanted to look through the theodolite and the child was right there, then there's no way in the world that it, it, it would be suicide for me to reach over and touch the child. That will upset the mother. You, you, you know, um, the, the um, uh, uh, and for example, on one evening, um, this tall white lady came, who um, I had seen a few times before, but she, uh, she wasn't a regular, and she brought three children with her. And she was somewhat older than the typical young adult and therefore somewhat taller. She was 6'1", 6'2". And, and following the usual so-called protocol, she had come down the uh, bunker road with her three children in an obvious manner to let me get used to the idea that she was coming with her kids. And then when she got to the end of the bunker road where the range boards were, she began approaching come, approaching me directly. I was halfway across the square. The, and as she got closer, oh, perhaps 20 feet, 15 feet, uh, um, even though I wasn't, I'd gotten over my fear of the tall whites, uh, you know, because you had to treat, treat each one as an individual, I found her, I found it a little intimidating that she was coming that close. And so I backed away from my theodolite towards the generator shack. And she said, is it okay if the children look in my weather shack while I took my report? And I said, yes. And so I backed away to the generator shack and stood with my back to the wall of the generator shack and left her standing just to the northeast of my theodolite and, you know, said, take all the time you want. 
And so then the three children went into my weather shack, like kids do, and they didn't touch anything or move anything, but they were just looking around out of curiosity. As I st- and, and at the time, as she stood there, she was looking at her children who were in the shack. Now, I'm not sure they were all her children. Uh, usually, when the oh, tall white lady came with three children, the typical contingent, one would be hers and two would be the children of someone else. Typically, she'd be babysitting two kids and bringing one of her own. And, and so she was watching the children. I became concerned because I had a can of Coca-Cola, which was in a metal can, sitting on one of the shelves. Now, the tall whites wore suits when they came at night that put out a zone of fluorescent light and radioactive particles. The suits protected them from things, like if you threw a rock at them, the rock wouldn't hit them. It would get to that zone and fall to the ground. It also allowed them to levitate, especially the children, but they had to balance themselves when they did so. So the children might use the suits to levitate. The adults usually didn't levitate very much, nine inches or so, but it worked like an elevator, as I'll describe later. And I became concerned that since the children had their suits on, usually the kids turned off the power to their suits when they went in my shack. Uh, and I, I became afraid that they would get next to that can of Coca-Cola and might be in some danger, in which case I might be blamed, you know. It would have been, you know, it would have been suicide for me to go over to my weather shack and speak to the children. You know, the mother might well have killed me if I'd done that. There's no way in the world you could go over there and say, children, don't do this, children, don't do that. You, you're just taking your life in your hands to try that. You have to talk to the mother, you know, and that that's how the tall whites are. And, and on the other hand, she wasn't looking at me at the time. And so what I did is I took uh, two steps forward and stopped and stood there with my hands at my side and my feet, you know, not moving and waited for her to see me. And of course, when I took two steps forward and stopped, then she looked over where I was immediately. And then when I had her attention, I said, I'm worried about the safety of the children. I have a can of soda pop, of Coca-Cola there in that can. And I'm worried that the children might be in some danger if they get too close to it. And the mother said, I'll handle it. And then the mother obviously communicated with the children, and the children were very well behaved, and they stayed away from my can of soda pop. The children never disobeyed their parents that I ever saw, and the parents would do anything for the children. So when they traveled in family groups, they were very tightly knit. When the women came around, they never came around alone. None of the tall whites ever came around alone. They always came around in groups, and the adults were always well-armed. But it was common for the women to be very proud of their family relationships. The men were too, but it was just more common for the women to, to, to describe it. So it would be it was very common, say, like for a, for if you, if a group of them came around, for the lady to say um, things like the guard on the tower is my mother's brother's son. You know, you know the you know the, the and and just identify who the you know all their friends were, uh, if they were who they were related to and who they weren't related to, and um, and and um, the, far more so than what humans would do. Uh, uh, when they so they they did more than just travel in family groups. They appeared to maintain very tightly knit family relationships. The the, the the tall whites 
um, live approximately 10 times longer than humans live. They, um, and, and they don't age the way we do. When they get, throughout most of their adult life, as, as I said, they're about our height, 5'10", 5'11", 6 feet. But then when they get equivalent in age to a human who's perhaps 39 or 40 years old, and for them that's perhaps 400 years old, then they start growing again. And 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 as instead of getting instead of aging the way we do, as they grow older, they go through several more growth periods. This is not necessarily good for them because only their bones and muscles grow; their internal organs don't grow in proportion. Pretty soon, they get very tall, eight eight and a half feet tall, but their organs aren't able to support their body. So as they get taller, they become more fragile. Eventually, after six or seven hundred years, or in there somewhere, there comes a growth phase where they begin growing again, and their organs can't support it, in which case they die. Usually, usually by the time they get to be eight feet tall, they're fragile, and usually aliens that tall are accompanied by younger adults to steady them. Um, Living longer does have some drawbacks. For one thing, their bodies do not heal as quickly as ours. If they break a leg and they're very fragile, so they break easy, it may take them, it may take their bones five earth years to re, to heal. Whereas, as you know, a young person, when I was young, if I broke a leg, could heal up in, I don't know, a few weeks or so. I'm not a medical doctor, but would heal up much faster. Cuts and scratches, for example, on, on, when, on, when I was young one time, for example, and I was out on the ranges, one day I scratched myself in a very ordinary fashion in the morning. By the afternoon, it had already healed up nicely, and by the next day, I'd almost forgotten about it. The next day, the a group of tall whites came around with the experienced tall white and some young arrivals, and they were sh they were very impressed that my body had already healed. For them, that would have taken several weeks to to have healed up like that. Um, also, when, although they're considered to be more intelligent than we are, because their nervous system runs two or three times faster than ours does, it does have some drawbacks. They tend to, when they're doing something, they tend to focus in on it more carefully than a human would. And they're therefore very easy to surprise when they're engaged in something. Uh, um, one time when a, a group of tall whites came around with the usual experienced guard and, and, and a group of new, new arrivals, it was the morning run. And I was young, I was doing what we all do. I was drinking soda pop, I was eating peanuts, I was talking, I was playing to the music. I was doing my blue, I'd released a balloon and I was tracking my balloon at the Seattleite. And I was singing some songs and dancing around too, to some Jagger songs, all kind of at the same time while writing down my numbers. And, and one of the new arrivals asked the experience guard, are all humans able to do that? because I was multitasking. For the tall whites wouldn't have done it that way. They would have just eaten and concentrated on eating, 
or they would have just taken the readings and concentrated on the readings, or, or, or you know, or sang their song and concentrated on singing their song. For, um, for that, uh, um, and so they appreciated, as I did, one of the first agreements that I negotiated with them. Uh, we agreed that they wouldn't come up behind me and scare me. They could do so very easily. Um, and I wouldn't come up behind them and scare them. You see, if I saw one of them out in the desert and he and it didn't appear that he had seen me, that I wouldn't approach him. I would just stay where I was and sing, sing, make a sound or sing one of my songs, such as the song by Ricky Nelson, It's Up to You, because I've done everything, you know, and, and until I was sure they had seen me. And then I wouldn't approach him. I would just stay where I was. And if they chose to come closer to me, they could approach me as close as they felt until uh, until they didn't feel comfortable. An experienced troop might come right up to you 10, 15 feet. A new arrival might stay back out there a quarter mile because it varied depending on which one you were talking to. On the other hand, if they chose to, to move away or to run away, I wouldn't pursue Okay. I would stay where I was, and they could, if I, and they could leave, if and they could come whenever they wanted and leave whenever they wanted. The same was the reverse was true. If they were approaching me, and they got too close, so that I felt uncomfortable, as in the case of the tall white lady at the theatlite stand, I would back away, and they would stay where they were until I had backed away to where I felt comfortable. So that, so that we could, so that before we began talking, we would first come to a distance where we both felt comfortable. You see, I've always felt that that was, and then if I got too uncomfortable, if I felt like going away, they wouldn't pursue. And I felt that was very important in being able to deal with the tall whites because it allowed the, it allowed both me and the tall white individual, whichever one I was dealing with, to come to a common distance where we were willing to talk to each other. For some, like the, like the teacher or range for Harry, that might be as little as 10 feet. For others, like that tall white general, well, I didn't want him closer than a quarter mile, you know. <laughs> yeah, and and that was a real important that that was one important agreement that we agreed on. And if I were to see one today out in the desert or out in, out in um, Indian Springs Valley or in, or out in the town of Indian Springs or whatever, I would still be living by that agreement. I have a master's degree in nuclear physics, and I believe that I, I believe that I figured out how their deep spacecraft worked, at least in general detail, and I copyrighted that in in a in a scientific paper I call Hall Photon Theory. It's included in the appendix of Book Three, Millennial Hospitality Three, um, The Road Home. I believe their, their deep their scout craft and their deep spacecraft had a double hull construction, and for example, in the case of the scout craft, in between those two hulls, they had what appeared to be a thousand miles of fiber optic windings. They built the scout craft using materials supplied them by the U.S. Air Force. The scout craft were clearly built here on this earth. 
when you went on board, some of many of the parts, like the seats, still had the mold markings of American manufacturers, like Lockheed, Boeing, the, the overhead compartments by Airstream, and so on. And so, therefore, it would it had to be perfectly possible to build a Scowcraft with its anti-gravity drive using ordinary American parts. The, the Scowcraft had, the, the fiber optics windings came in several sets. And, 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 and the way it worked is it worked in a manner philosophically the same as an electromagnet. It's just that they did not, in an electromagnet, you use electrons on copper, going down copper wires and coils. Instead, they, they, instead of electrons, they used some other subatomic particle. I'm not sure which one. It's my understanding that there are three different ones or maybe five different ones, perhaps mesons or bosons or those subatomic particles, and then that that th that put out anti-gravity. The particle generators looked like batteries where there was one that would create the particles and accelerate them into the fiber optics and then the fiber optics amplified the anti-gravity field the same way that an electromagnet amplifies the electric field or the magnetic field. And I'll leave it at that. When you talk about interesting, wow. One of the byproducts of these subatomic particles running down a fiber optic cable, which makes sense, is that it's radioactive. It has to decay, and its decay is radioactive. Remember the uh, new, the new um, addition to the periodic table, what Bob Lazar was explaining about his timeout? At Area 51, never doubted his story, even when it came out back in the 80s, when no one even knew what Area 51 is. It is because of Bob Lazar that we all know that Area 51 even exists. But even more importantly, in Area 51, there is even more secure places, locations. They call it dreamland. But S4, where Bob Lazar worked, and he actually worked on the propulsion system. Remember what he what he talked about about how this this propulsion system worked. The Moscovium Moscovium that Moscovium that was added to the periodic table twenty something years after he talked about it. <laughs> After he talked about it on a news, on the news. Help us understand what this technology means, how advanced it is. You know, it becomes obvious at some point it's from somewhere else. We didn't make it because we're taking it apart to figure out how it works. Look, a machine that makes gravity is the most important thing that mankind could probably create. Look, we have electromagnets that make magnetic fields. You know, we can make electric fields we you know with van de graaff generators and you know god knows what else but you know to make a gravitational field is like the, the the last piece of a missing pie because when you can are right now the only thing that makes gravity as far as we know is mass 
you just need a bunch of stuff and it's a property of mass that it just magically pulls in things. You know, we observe gravity, we see what it does, but we really don't know what it, what it is. We can throw some equations together and say, well, it works like this, but we really don't know what's behind it. But if you can make a machine that on demand makes gravity, you know, all the stuff we write science fiction about stops becoming science fiction that afternoon. Then force fields become a reality. You can shift time. I mean, everything becomes possible. It's, uh, it's, it's the most important thing. And here is an operating machine sitting in front of us that makes gravity. And we really want to be able to make one of those things. I mean, you could make impenetrable fields. You can do, have propulsion that uh, is mind-boggling as the crafts operate. It would be the ultimate weapon. Well, not, it, not just the ultimate weapon, but it would really be the ultimate thing. It would, it would catapult mankind forward. And what really sucks is the military is in control of this. I should, uh, yeah. I, I neglected to mention this during my presentation, but Bob and I have talked about it before, a guy named Ben Rich, who uh, Jim Goodall knows and interviewed several times. Ben Rich was the head of the Skunk Works, which uh, was the, they operated things at, at Groom Lake and, uh, and had been there to develop the U-2 and SR-71 and Stealth. If anybody would know about advanced technology, it's him and Kelly Johnson. So um, a lot of people have speculated whether Ben Rich uh, and those guys had incorporated alien technology into some of the advanced airframes that we've got. And I even had a chance to ask him on the day that the stealth was unveiled out there at Nellis whether any alien stuff was in there. He said no. But other people have talked to him. Jan Harzan, who's here from MUFON, heard a speech that Ben Rich gave at UCLA in which he basically said, we now have the technology to take ET home. We had the calculations slightly wrong, but we can do anything you can imagine. We can travel to the stars. But, he said, the technology is locked up in black, bud black budgets and black programs and will never see the light of day. What do you think about that? Well, that's sort of like the same thing you're saying. Yeah, that sounds exactly like what I'm saying. You know, I hope that's not the case, but I mean, how do you pry it out of there? It's, it's, it really, there should be a lot more people working on this. We just had a report to what was going on, so it's not like you can ever say, you know, we really don't know. We've been working on this two weeks. You better come up with something. So it's, uh, you know, like we think it's a, we think it's an accelerator, and you know, we, we we've identified that that's, you know, 114, 115, 160. It looks like it's 115. It's an element, and you have to explain this stuff to guys that absolutely have minimal scientific background, and just try that when you're dealing with stuff that's not even, you know, from the earth. So how does it work? I mean, how does it work? Um, what you learn, you, you get a piece of it, a triangle, it's in, the, and, and how does it, it function? Really, you just put the, uh, I, I wish I had that model that, uh, it's in my car. Show me. is it really? Okay. Um, you, you, you just put the, the fuel in there. You, there's a, there's a little cap that sits on top. And then as soon as you put, yet nothing happens, but as soon as you put the lid on, it turns on. There's no on switch. Yeah, it's just, it, it's like it attains resonance or something. It just is on. Which makes you wonder, how does it work in the craft? Because no one's taken the lid off, because in the craft, it sits on the ground, and there's a conduit that sits over it and goes to the top of the craft. So, but it's not clear how anything works in the craft. 
and it generates gravity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it generates its own gra artificial gravitational field, and that lifts the craft off the ground. We've had conversations uh, in private about how this accounts for some UFO cases. I mean, it, it in effect achieves invisibility in a sense. You could be saying, right? Oh, now. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because light, it, it will bend it around there. And it, I'm uh, sorry, I didn't leave that. <laughs> I left out that pretty important observation. When the craft was up, I mean, you could walk underneath and look straight up and you can't see the craft until you step to the side and it becomes visible again. It's quite, it's quite amazing, you know? So it, it well, it bends, it bends light, just like, uh, you know, you could see on a, a hot roadway in the summertime how, how heat would affect that coming off of, uh, you know, but here you're, it, it, you're in a much more controlled situation and, the way the shape of the gravitational field the artificial field around the craft if you look at that and then we're able to stand at different vantage points you can just look around it now this isn't something new we know this from you know looking at faraway stars uh they, they call it gravitational lensing where a star might be over here but because we're looking around another star it bends light and you know but here again here is an artificial source, a machine that does this, and that's everything. But yeah, all, like I said, all the science fiction things become reality. There's your invisibility cloak, there's your, you know, impenetrable force field, here's your field propulsion system, and, you know, here's you're even beginning to tamper with, you know, potential time travel. It occurs to you, hey, this could work not only in space, but underwater. Maybe that's why the Navy's interested running the program. I mean, that, it's odd, isn't it? That it's the U.S. Navy running the program out there. You know, that never occurred to me. <laughs> no, I never. I swear to this, I never even thought about that thing operating underwater. It I would wonder work how, just fine, though, wouldn't it? I guess. I, I don't know. <laughs>
and this allows the craft to essentially stand on two of them and hover while this one swings up and creates a distortion in front of it allowing the craft to slide forward so that's how their low power mode uh, omicron configuration operates the delta configuration uses all three and unlike science fiction movies where you see flying saucers just flying along like that they actually fly belly first the craft flies along leaves the atmosphere of the planet it turns its belly to the destination the three amplifiers focus in on the destination and that's how it proceeds incredible I wanted to make sure I showed that presentation there because it is quite it's it's it can make a person understand a little bit more by seeing that the way that gravitational field is actually created makes sense to what Charles Hall was saying. Completely different guy, different experiences, different individual. And he even talked about how there is a low power mode and a high power mode. Right. Uh, the operation. Now, the material that this craft is made out of is known as, well, has become known as element 115, new element that did not exist in 1989 when Bob Lazar came out to the world on the news in Vegas, actually. Um, and, and it just so happens the gentleman that we've seen him sitting there talking to, okay, he is the individual that interviewed Bob Lazar back in 1989. He worked for the news station in Las Vegas. Okay. Um, I mean, he's, you know, from the, from the desert to the, well, la, 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 right. He's got a whole thing that he says, um, but it's just, it's pretty amazing stuff. But this element 115, also known as Moscovium on the element, ta uh, the, uh, the periodic table, was just added recently, but yet Bob Lazar mentioned it years ago. The thing about it is a person, the, the element, the way the periodic table works is you could pretty much predict an element that may come, but there's, you know, I'll just go ahead and bring it up. There's all this talk about Bob Lazar possibly being in possession of a piece of this craft, a triangular piece. There is a video floating around that was recorded when, uh, you know, it was recorded. It's said to have come somehow out of the whole Bob Lazar thing. And you can see in this video, this, this, this piece, this piece of 115, a solid piece bending light doing exactly what he's saying that it does in these interviews. Bob Lazar's story has never changed. Never change. I mean, me being a, a 11, 12 year old girl, remembering his most famous news interview, you know, coming out to the entire world, you know, Area 51, what's that? And, you know, but this, there's this video, like I said, floating around in which there's like this very interesting looking triangular piece. Um, of element 115 and while pointing a beam of light at it, it actually bends that light. So what he's saying, as far as, you know, you, you could literally go stand up under the craft, look up while this 
these gravity emitters are turned on, you can't even see the craft right above you. And it would literally catapult mankind, the abilities of mankind into, I mean, the military, surely they know it, right? I mean, could you imagine getting your hands on technology that could make its own gravitational field? Man, that would be amazing. And that sort of explains, you know, to me, it's like, okay, we hear Charles Hall talking about these suits <laughs> and people levitating and people being able to, you know, even it, it created like a barrier of protection. And we'll, we'll, you know, definitely venture more into Charles Hall's discussion. But only eight, nine years ago, did researchers come out and say, yeah, we were able to make atoms collide. And we can say that we were actually able to make just a few, a particle or two of element 115, which being the fact there's nothing on Earth. There's nothing on Earth that, you know, like, there's absolutely nothing on Earth that, a non-solid structure of this element, let alone a solid structure, as far as mankind does. That's if you don't believe that somehow Bob Lazar isn't holding a piece of 115. Who knows? I know that he's been swatted by FBI, every single three-letter agency in our United States government. Of course, they don't even admit that they're doing it. Years ago today, KLS aired a live interview with an anonymous man who made some really astonishing claims. He alleged that the U.S. military was secretly studying alien technology out in the Nevada desert near a base that is now very well known all over the world. Area 51. A lot has changed in the decades since Bob Lazar first told this wild story. The Pentagon recently admitted that it really has been secretly studying UFOs and then it wanted to figure out and duplicate that technology. George Knapp looks back at that 1989 interview that started a whole new conversation. It's totally impossible. Uh, the propulsion system is an, uh, a gravity propulsion system. The power source is an antimatter reactor. Uh, this technology does not exist at all. The claim sounded like Hollywood sci-fi. Months later, when his identity was revealed, Bob Lazar said he worked at a secret facility near Groom Lake where alien technology was being reverse engineered, that is, taken apart to figure out how it worked and whether the Pentagon could duplicate it. This is the simple drawing he made at the time. Here now I had access and was permitted to view and look at the operation of this main level with the gravity amplifiers and the level below. The premise seems less preposterous now. In a new documentary about Lazar, he describes in detail the spacecraft he worked on 30 years ago. The craft that I worked on, that when it's, when it's going to travel a long distance, that is how it operates. It flies along and it, it puts its belly to the target and then brings all the amplifiers to power and you know, it shoots off in that direction. It doesn't fly as it would in the science fiction movies. It flies with the belly, the bottom forward. If the description of a spacecraft tilting sounds familiar, 
Take a look at the so-called gimbal UFO, a video released by the Pentagon in 2017. Naval pilots encountered a fleet of these unknown craft off the coast of Florida in 2015 and have since had dozens of similar encounters. The spike in UFO incidents prompted a recent policy change by the Navy, which announced it wants to encourage its pilots to report future incidents. Pentagon officials reluctantly admitted to the New York Times 17 months ago that the military has secretly studied UFO incidents, in part so it might figure out the technology. In the gimbal video, there's a mechanistic turn against the wind without deceleration. So we have a craft without rotors, without heat signatures, without plumes, without tail fins, and certainly no tail number, moving in a way that is counterintuitive to our own aeronautics. When Bob saw that, he came to the conclusion, this has to be a gravity-propelled craft. That it does mimic exactly the propulsion system that Bob Lazar described. The story is extraordinary. Jeremy Corbell directed the Lazar documentary, but he also broke the story about another now-famous UFO incident, the 2004 Tic Tac encounter. The Navy pilot who engaged the Tic Tac, Black Aces commander Dave Fravor, has said he doesn't believe the astonishing craft was made on Earth, that the propulsion might be anti-gravity. When Lazar was shown the Tic Tac video for the first time, it immediately reminded him of the sport model, his name for the craft stashed in the desert. There's no question in my mind. I, I mean, I'm virtually certain that's the way the craft operated, and that uses close to or the exact same propulsion system. Former Pentagon intelligence officer Lou Elizondo was in charge of ATIP, the secret Pentagon study. He told us one goal of the project was to determine the physics of UFOs, how they can achieve the seemingly impossible. The military came to believe the craft relied on special metamaterials, stuff that can't be made with known technology. Lazar made similar claims decades ago and was ridiculed. Now the Pentagon is on the same page. Where the study of UFOs did not end in 1969 with Project Blue Book. In fact, that was a lie, and it is now an admitted lie by our own Pentagon. We are living in a world where it is understood that there are craft technologically advanced from unknown origin that are performing maneuvers that far exceed anything of human technology. This has been going on a long time, and our government has been studying it. George Knapp, 8 News Now. As always, we have posted additional links and resources connected to this story on our website, including news reports from our archives. Pretty amazing stuff. You know, that's, it's pretty amazing stuff. Didn't even intend for this to go this long, but um, you know, know how it goes. But it is a very interesting topic, to say the least. So, y'all, you know, I'll be I'll be talking about it till the day I D.I.E. You know, I love this type of stuff. But there you go. And, you know, whatever you want to call this an episode or an edition or another leak you experience, whatever. Y'all, I'm out of here. I'll catch y'all. I'll catch y'all next time. Sorry, I cut myself off. Until next time. Bye, guys.